0: Interesting. I thought it'd be a good lead into what we were talking about with Brad. Let's uh, let's uh, delve down into it and talk with him about this and more. Good morning, sir. How are you,
1: Michael? I'm doing great. How are you today?
0: You know, not too bad, by the way, Brad Keithley, for those folks who don't know, is the founder of Alaskans for a Sustainable Budget, former oil and gas consultant, now retired, who comes on every week to dissect this stuff with us. So, Brad, before we jump into it, because there's there's lots of stuff on the horizon, the Chinese uh, gas deal and everything else. Your thoughts on what we just talked about with uh, Tammy about this political gamesmanship that was going on in the Senate? I mean, I think we kind of dodged a bullet here because they were going to try and leverage this stuff to bring this payroll tax in front of a combined committee of the House and the Senate.
1: Well, we're dodging lots of bullets these days. Yeah, it's um, uh, we're facing we're facing a a, a very difficult period with the Alaska Senate, who, who we've all viewed as sort of the last line of defense to bring spending down, sort of having given given up on that role. And now the Senate is 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 trying to find ways to to you know, maintain a PFD cut um, and to think about additional revenues because they aren't in a position to to cut spending further. And and that's – yes, we've dodged a bullet here, but I think we're going to continue to face bullets – Uh, As we come through, as we go through the next session.
0: Yeah. Well, and again, I I think it was uh, this was well played by the Senate. And it keeps us, again, out of the spotlight of potentially having to try and defend against another taking of the people uh, in the form of a payroll tax. So at least I'm, I'm happy about that. But let's talk about the big elephant in the room, which, of course, is the Chinese gas deal. Now, I find it ironic that the governor had all this hoopla, the dog and pony show of putting all this stuff together. And yet when it was all said and done, we really don't know anything. Uh, and we won't know anything until well after the election. In fact, they're saying we won't even really know the details till late 2018, maybe early 2019, before we know whether or not the uh, the Chinese are going to actually uh, put money on this. There's a lot of questions involved here. And I know Nat hers had a, a piece where he asked five. You say there might be one that's even actually more than that. Let's talk about it.
1: Well, the... Let me say a couple of things. First of all, I think this is a step forward. Uh, the Chinese have a big market. Uh, they have a, a need for additional gas. One of the reasons that we've had uh, a run-up over the last few months in the spot price of LNG, uh, and we're now, LNGs uh, in the $8 and $9, $9 range. Uh, one of the reasons we've had is because the Chinese demand has surprised uh, not only the market, but it's to a degree has surprised the Chinese. As they try to deal with their their, their environmental issues uh, arising from their heavy reliance on coal, try to reduce coal, increase the use of natural gas, increase the redu- uh, increase the use of renewables as well, but increase the use of natural gas, uh, they're going to have an increasing uh, a substantial increasing demand, uh, and and entering into some sort of relationship uh, with the Chinese uh, is a positive thing. I mean. Yes, the, the, the Nat Hertz and, and Alex DeMarbin point out in their piece that there's that there's not a concrete deal, that we won't know the terms of the deal for for a fairly long period of time, and that there's other issues with it. But but moving down the road with the Chinese, a large market like the Chinese is, is a is a is a positive deal, and the fact that the Chinese recognized it as enough of a deal to include it uh, on the table uh, during the the visit by President Trump. Um, I think it I think is a positive sign. Now, there are that that being said, there are problems with it and there are significant problems with it. Uh, Nat and Alex uh, identified some uh, asking the question, is there a real deal? Is there enough financing to get us there? How will the producers react? Those are all good questions. But in my 35 some odd years of dealing with with deals in the oil industry, I've learned one thing, and that is what's really important when you have multiple parties in a deal is alignment. That is, are all the parties working in the same direction and trying to accomplish something? If you have alignment, you more, than li- more likely than not are going to be able to get to a deal because everybody's going to find it in their interest to, to, to finalize a deal. When you don't have alignment, as much as you struggle to get to a deal – Uh, There's always some problem that pops up that if the parties aren't aligned, they're going to be at cross-purposes on. And that either generates a significant amount of delay, uh, which kills the deal, or it uh, 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 kills the deal because they just can't come to agreement. And and here, the deal with the Chinese is, uh, is, is, is a prime example. The Chinese are in this deal... Because they they want a cheap supply of natural gas. They want a cheap supply right. of LNG. Alaska should be in the deal. Alaska's in the deal because we want to sell our natural gas at a high price. And and the kind of conflict that's going to generate in the various agreements we have to come to uh potentially is going to be significant. The Chinese are going to come in and they're going to say, Okay, we're going to give you financing, we're going to assist with the with the construction of the pipeline. Um, and our interests will be aligned in having a low-cost pipeline. That'll that'll work well. But the Chinese are going to say, and we want us and we want a cheap supply. We want you to sell us the natural gas uh, at a low price. And if you don't do that, then there are other suppliers out there in the market that will that will you know talk to more. Yes, we know Alaska. Yes, we know you have a lot of gas, Alaska. But we want it at the right price, and we're going to want we're going to want a cheap price, and we're going to want a cheaper price still. Because we're lending all of this assistance to the project,
0: right Alaska
1: on the other Alaska, on the other hand is going to want a high price. And that sort of misalignment um, right. I think is what's going to be the most difficult problem as 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 we go through this process with the Chinese.
0: As an investor and as a buyer, there's almost a conflict of interest in that regard because, I mean, yes, they may be loaning money to the project, doing all things. But again, it, it almost ends up being kind of a pay for play thing. Uh, and that's always where the cross purpose is. The seller always wants to sell at the highest price. The buyer always wants to buy at the lowest price. But usually the buyer isn't involved in helping the seller develop the product.
1: Yeah, it's, it's in some it, sometimes there is some involvement by buyers in some of these LNG deals. Um, and and I think we anticipated that down the road. But what's happening is if the Chinese come in and are gonna provide all the financing and all of the engineering assistance, that's gonna, that's gonna create a tremendous amount of leverage on their part. One of the things that bothers me when I look at Governor Walker's statements and the other statements coming out of the administration is the emphasis on all these jobs that we're gonna generate during the construction, during the construction period. Right. And that's and that's true, but that's a very short-term outlook. That's a that's a I mean, yes, it's going to be in the 2020s, but it's a it's a one-time event of looking at all those jobs and saying, "Oh, this is a great deal because we're going to have all these jobs." It what's what's really important to Alaska from a long-term perspective is what the sales price of the of the of the LNG of the gas is going to be. That's where we're going to make our money over the long term. There's also an emphasis on, oh, we're going to have returns on, on the pipeline. We're going to have uh, all these economic returns from whatever investment we put in in the pipeline through the tariffs that are charged. Well, we can get better returns on our money. Alaska can get better returns on its money by putting it into the stock market. That's what the Permanent Fund Corporation does and does fairly well. So just, just saying we're going to put money in and get steady returns out of the pipeline, that's not an economic boost either. The really critical thing. In, in how this plays out economically for Alaska is whether, is whether we get and the extent to which we get um, uh, uh, the, the, the sales price return on the gas that we're selling. We're actually aligned better with the producers on that issue than we are with the Chinese. And I fran- and frankly, I think one of the things that, that we're gonna, that we should see out of this is the producers becoming more actively involved on the side of the state of Alaska in the discussions with the Chinese because they will be aligned in getting the best price.
0: We're talking with Brad Keithley here, Founders for Alaskans for a Sustainable Budget on The Michael Duke Show. AM 700 KB wire oldies 102.1. So, Brad, that's the question that wasn't being asked. What you're pointing out here is the question that isn't being asked. But let's go back quickly here to the, some of the questions that Nat Hers asked. And I guess let me ask one overarching question, because I'm looking at all this and I'm, I'm seeing all this. I'm seeing the timing of it. I'm seeing how it all lays out. And and I guess my question becomes, how much of this is political theater, on the part of not only Governor Walker, who's looking for a push going into his next election cycle, but also on the part of the Trump administration, which is looking for a it's looking for a win on the sino American uh, you know trade accords and things like that. How how much of that is how much of this is just kind of political theater uh, before we get down into the other details?
1: Well, I think a lot of it. I, I think I think there's a substantial amount of it on the part of. Um On the part of our administration, the states administration and on the part of the trump administration and and to some degree there's there's political theater on the chinese side right too uh right. President Trump has made a point out of um emphasizing the balance of trade uh, uh imbalance between the chinese and and the u s and the Chinese get political benefits out of this also by looking like they're trying to do things that help that help balance uh balance trade restore or or offset The imbalance in trade to some degree. So there's a lot of political theater going on, but the fundamentals are there. The fundamentals that the Chinese need gas, and Alaska has gas, and Alaska is 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 fairly well positioned to supply gas, and Alaska is fairly well positioned to to provide a secure supply of gas to the Chinese. The fundamentals are there, and I don't think it would have gotten to the level. um, Again, having dealt with this for these sorts of things for a while, I don't. I don't think it would have gotten to the level of being included on the list uh of 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 those deals announced uh during the during the visit had had there not been substance to it I don't think in other words, I don't think it's all political theater i think there's some some substance there and the and the question is can we can we get to that substance and make a deal uh on that substance?
0: so that leads us to some of the other questions that were brought up which i thought were were pretty solid uh one of the big questions is uh you know will the oil companies agree to sell the gas now there's an argument obviously that they have an obligation to produce and to sell if they're you know if you build it they will come kind of thing uh where they're obligated by their leases to sell the gas if there is a if there's an intent buyer but the question is will they actually sell it some have indicated Conoco said that they intend to sell the gas at the wellhead, uh, but there's some question as to whether the other producers will, uh, because they have other uses for the gas, including pressurizing wells and doing some other things.
1: Yeah, so that's going to come down to the economics. That's where we, that's where the state and the producers are aligned. Yes, the producers will be happy to sell the gas if the Chinese want to pay twenty dollars an MMBTU for it. No, the producers won't be happy to sell the gas if the Chinese just want to pay a penny for it. So there's, there's, there's an economic strike point in there someplace between where uh, the producers are going to be helpful, affirmative, positive in bringing this to, to closure um, and, and are going to be reticent about it. There, there are other uses, as you point out, there are other uses of the gas. There are other ways that uh, there are other technologies that the producers have looked at in the past. Uh, uh, gas to liquids is one. Um, and, and those all have costs to them. And, and LNG has looked like a better deal historically compared to those. But if the Chinese want to try to push the price down to you know pennies on the pennies on the MMBTU, then the producers are going to look at the whole card and say, look, there are other ways we can be using this gas, or the gas is going to be more valuable in the future by 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 not taking this this short term deal. Uh, what's being dangled in front of us? The producers. Uh, there's a lot of talk about the producers have an obligation to sell yes they do but they have an obligation to sell on economic terms and if the producers could could if the producers are of the opinion and can demonstrate that the that the terms the chinese are offering are not economic uh then then the producers don't have an obligation to sell in that situation so that's going to be the economics of this the economics of that gas sales agreement uh is is the crucial piece of this if we get alignment on that. If the producers and the state get to a strike price that that they're going to feel is economically justifiable, this project's going to go. Uh, but if we if we can't reach that deal, uh, then this project's going to have all sorts of problems. And and that's the that's the alignment issue that uh, that, that that sits out there that that I don't that, that hasn't come together yet.
0: My final question before we run the clock out—we're coming close here—but is really on this. I've been doing a lot of reading on China and especially Xi Jinping, his his leadership of where he's taking China, um, his his actions, and kind of his vision. From what I'm seeing, is a little troubling. And and the big question—you've worked in a lot of international deals, and you so you've seen this before. But the big question is. Should Alaska hook its economic future to China? I mean, we're already a big trade partner to begin with, but should we hook it more to China, which is an authoritarian communist regime?
1: Well, <laughs> so <laughs> the, the article is great in sort in sort of pointing out the difference between Paul Seton's reaction and some of the other reactions uh, on that question. We we are if we sell LNG, we're going to be hooked to the Chinese substantially to the Chinese regardless. They are the world's biggest market right now, the biggest opportunity in terms of addition uh, in terms of LNG sales. Korea's got some demand, Japan Japan's got some demand, India's gonna have some demand. But China and, and Petro Vietnam is going to have some demand. But China is is the big elephant in the room. And if we're gonna have an LNG project one way or the other, we're gonna be hooked to the Chinese. This is a this is a, a, a substantially greater hooking the deal that, that was announced is a substantially greater hooking because they're going to be both a lender and and, and a financial advisor and 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 help in the construction, uh, but but one way or another we're going to be hooked. So I don't I don't think it's a question of should we be hooked. We're going to be hooked. The question is are uh, the question is the economic terms in which we are hooked to them.
0: Well, it's uh, it's interesting to see, and and of course we won't know the details of how we're hooked to them until late 2018, early 2019, which I guess is convenient from a lot of ways, but uh, we'll have more on this. Don't go anywhere. The Michael Duke Show continues right here on your home for Common Sense Radio. Uh, We're having some issues with that, and now we've gotten the latest uh, revenue forecast, which we thought was going to be mostly good news, but it turns out it may not be uh, all that and a bag of chips. Brad Keithley joins us this morning. Good morning, sir.
1: Good morning, Michael. How are you doing?
0: Good, good. Let's uh, so let's continue. We've got the new revenue and expenditures model which we thought was going to be good because we've had increasing oil prices, we've had increasing production, we've had a bonzer year and the permanent fund earnings uh and and more, but it's not all wine and roses.
1: I got to tell you I was stunned when David Teal, the legislative finance director, made his presentation to the first of the Senate Finance Committee and then to the House Finance Committee asked to do an outlook for fiscal year 2019 that will be the fiscal year that the legislature is dealing with during the next regular session uh, looking at uh, what the what the uh, f- fiscal situation is at that point and Teal was sort of asked to make a, a preliminary look at it based upon the preliminary forecast that the administration had made both on the revenue side and that the Office of Management and Budget had made on the spending side, and I was stunned when he when he made the presentation. The presentation shows that, notwithstanding the very good news that oil production is up significantly from where it was projected last year, uh, that the deficit, the projected deficit, is increasing. And and I and it took me a second to figure out. What would, well, more than a second, but it took me a while to figure out what was going on. But basically, the moving parts uh, are that while production is up significantly, and we all need to be very happy about that, and we need to, to celebrate that, um, that, that the administration has, has, has forecast, revised its price forecast from what, from what it had originally used last spring to reduce the price, and that brings – that that brings the revenue number down. Uh, you're showing the Teal's presentation showed, for example, that over the course of the eight years that they looked at, uh, revenues were down uh, from what had been forecast last spring uh, by hundred million, about $100 million uh, going down a little bit, but about $100 million to start off uh, from what they'd forecast. And that's due to the reduction in price that the administration forecast, but I, I was I was sort of getting my head around that, and then I looked at the expenditure numbers, the spending numbers, uh, and uh, Office of Management and Budget has substantially increased uh, the spending numbers forecast uh, over the next eight years from what they included in last year's plan. They explain that those spending numbers that they that they included in the forecast. Are all of the services that essentially the Senate and the House approved in last year's budget, and then trended up by inflation, the cost of inflation uh, over the next year, over the next eight years. So, the this, notwithstanding this great news that we've got on the production side, the net net of what those two forecasts show, the, spend, the revenue forecast and the spending forecast, show an increasing deficit. Uh, over what we over over what was forecast just last spring, 173 million dollar increased deficit in FY19, 247 million dollars, a quarter of a billion dollars in FY20, 140 million dollars in in FY21, uh, and it continues out at that string. So, not only <laughs> the reason I was stunned is not only are we not getting better as a result of increased production, we're actually actually getting worse. Uh, as a result of the revision in the price forecast uh, and the increase on the spending side.
0: And some of that could be attributed to the fact that they're not including all revenue streams, including the uh, 50 percent of the permanent fund earnings, which, again, I just mentioned had a bonzer year this year. Uh, So they're not including that in the projection. So that's part of it. But again, the bigger part is that they're just it's, it's all this increased spending and every dollar that's spent, has a future impact like you said we're talking about the inflationary even if state funding remained flat as far as approved spending the inflationary component of it means that we're going to be paying for it more and more into the future
1: exactly right I mean once, once you set a baseline if you say that's the baseline we've got to maintain and and we've got to adjust it for inflation which which makes some sense uh, once you set the baseline we've got to, we've got to increase it for inflation. To maintain that same baseline of service, uh, once you set the baseline high, you're just asking for trouble as you dig in farther and farther. You, you're exactly right on including uh, the, uh, uh, the permanent fund earnings. I, in a previous conversation, you and I had talked about the great, the, 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 the fact that the permanent fund had come out with a revised earnings forecast over the next 10 years. That was substantially greater than the earnings forecast that they had in the spring, and I and I thought, well, this is going to help help move us toward the toward the solution. But going back and doing uh, a 50/50 take uh, on those earnings, uh, yes, they improved the situation. For example, in FY 2019, before including 50/50 50% of the earnings, the deficit's is about 2.7 billion dollars, or 2.8 billion dollars. Actually, after you include 50/50. It's down to 1.5 billion dollars, but it's still 1.5 billion dollars. And right. as and while and while that deficit goes down, some, frankly, because earnings, the revised earnings forecast are, if you if you include those, uh, 50% of those, uh, we're 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 gaining on it, but we're still talking about deficits that are over a billion dollars, out till toward the end of the, uh, out out till toward the end of the eight-year cycle, so it's what that really focuses on is we have not got our cost structure under control. I know some people will say we need new rev That's that proves. We need new revenues um, and new, and we've got to have new revenues, but we're talking about a billion and a half to close this gap. We're talking about a billion and a half of new revenues uh, for at least the next couple of years, a billion two to new revenues for several years beyond that. Uh, we're talking about some fairly big numbers here. And, and, new revenues, I mean, if we try to raise new revenues to offset those numbers and take that money out of the private sector and push it over to the government sector, then we're just, we're going to dig the hole that the private sector is in deeper and deeper and deeper. Uh, We already know that cutting the PFD has the largest adverse impact on the overall economy. We know that from the ICER study. We know it has by far the worst impact on Alaska families. If we, if we do that, and then we try to take additional new revenues, out of the private sector, we're just going to be digging the private sector's hole, the the hole the private sector's in deeper and deeper and deeper. The problem that this helps us focus on is our cost structure is just out of line. The state's cost structure is just out of line. And that's not to say that, oh, you know, I'm going to advocate, I'm advocating cutting K through 12, or I'm advocating any particular thing. Our cost structure is just out of line for what our revenue picture is, even if we add in Uh, the the, uh, uh, additional revenues from uh, the the permanent fund, using 50-50, adding in additional revenues from the permanent fund earnings.
0: We're talking with Brad Keithley here, Alaskans for a Sustainable Budget on the Michael Duke Show, AM 700, KBYR, Oldies 102.1. Brad, you just mentioned K through 12. That always seems to be the favorite stalking horse. About it. when anybody starts talking about, you know, reducing costs and everything else, that seems to be where they go to to begin with. Because of course they want to scare you. They don't want you know these mandated uh, uh, services that should be provided. But we're already seeing the effect on the economy. We just got the report this morning. The school district here in Anchorage is down over. Seven, three times they expected a decline, but they're already three times what they expected. Some of it is probably people moving out to the valley uh, because of cheaper housing and everything else. But I guarantee you some of that's people just moving out of the state because the economy is is recovering in the lower 48. And people figure they've got more opportunity out here. And uh, here it's just a huge question mark. It's it's going to continue to go down.
1: It is. And and doing things that make that worse. By taking additional money out of the private sector, I mean we're already seeing it with the PFD cuts. Taking additional money out of the private sector is just going to make that worse. We'll, yeah, government will be great. I mean, government will be financed at a, at a level that is comfortable with, but the private sector will be will be sucking money out of the private sector in a way that that that, that just keeps uh, keeps the private sector going down and down and down. So, we we have got to find some balance here. I I think the storyline, frankly, Michael. Out of this, out of out of out of what Teal's presentation was, and it probably wasn't the storyline he he intended, and it probably wasn't the storyline uh, that uh, the OMB director Pat Pitney intended when she gave these spending numbers. But I think the storyline out of this is, yeah, we've cut a lot of costs, we cut the easy things, but we've got to go in and fundamentally restructure our our cost uh, our cost position in this state. We cannot we cannot raise the level of revenues. Uh, that's that's going to be necessary to cover these sorts of costs. We have got to get got to get our costs down. And frankly, I think the storyline also, and and, I've, and, and and why I think this is going to start showing up in the 2018 election is Governor Walker has known about this situation. Oil prices went down in the summer of 2014. We knew they were we knew they were down by the time that he took office in December uh, of 2014. They've been down the entire time he's been in office. He's had three years, he'll have four years uh, coming up to to have dealt with that, and and we haven't gotten our cost structure in line yet. So I think think this bleeds over to the 2018 election and is is a bad reflection on on the time that we've wasted, frankly, trying to deal with the cost side in, in uh, in dealing with the state's fiscal situation.
0: We're going to hear from them. We're down to the last two minutes here, Brad, but we're going to hear from them that, of course, we can't cut anymore. We've cut 40%. We've cut this. We've cut hundreds of jobs. We've cut all this stuff. We just can't cut anymore. What say you? Well, we can't
1: afford not to. We we can't afford not to get our cost structure in line. If we're, trying, if we're going to try to raise a billion, again, I'm just stunned at these numbers, but if we're going to try to raise a billion and a half dollars every year, out of the private sector we've only got a 40 billion dollar uh economy if we're going to try to raise a billion and a half dollars by push by moving it out of the private sector into the government sector every year to try to deal with the deficits that are showing up here we're going to have a private sector that 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 it is not going to be a reflection of anything of anything we see now. We're going to have a significant significantly diminished private sector. So we can't afford not to do, not to take on these costs. We have got to get Alaska's government spending in line with the, the tight with, with what we can afford.
0: Well, and I'm a little worried again, we're seeing this is the canary in the coal mine, this school district thing. It's just showing you where things are going. If the depopulation continues, it spreads whatever potential burden down to fewer and fewer people, which just exacerbates it, that we've got to get it done now. Uh, Brad Keithley, thank you so much for coming in and joining us. It was a pleasure speaking with you as always. We'll see you next week.
1: Thanks a lot, Michael. I look forward to it.